I hold in my hand here God's Word. And God has spoken to us from His Word. And God has done more than just give us His Word. He has shown grace to us by giving us His Son to come to this earth and to die on the cross for this sin that I've spoken of a, a moment ago. But God has been silent, and we all understand that. But when God breaks the silence, it's going to be with a shout. And amnesty for the unbeliever is going to be over at that time. We've been looking at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to go into a little bit more clarification on it today. And I think you're going to really find this interesting. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Somebody so well said years ago that we should live our lives as though Christ died yesterday, He rose again this morning, and He's coming back this afternoon. And friend, He may well likely be coming back this afternoon. The signs of the times are everywhere, and I'm looking up. I don't know about you. So we've been talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts of it today. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on, but I think you'll really appreciate what you learn as we look into the Scriptures today. Only going to look at three verses, but uh, we're going to be talking about comfort for Christians. Comfort for the Christian. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Notice verse 11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. We're here today together, and we have some comforting words for God's people. Comfort for the Christian. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we think of the second coming of Christ and know how comforting it is. And Lord, in light of it, help us to be ready. Help us to be more than waiting. Help us to be watching and help us to be serving. And Father, we just pray now that you drive home some truths to our hearts today that would help us to understand this glorious truth that much better. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's something that is mysterious, and it has been for millenniums. People have wondered, why doesn't God do something about the situation in the world today? Why, why is God silent while war goes on? And why is God silent while plagues take place? And, and domestic abuse goes on, and God is silent. And we see famine taking place, and God is silent. And earthquakes, and tornadoes, and, and, uh, and hurricanes, and cyclones, and, and God is still silent. There's persecution worldwide going on at an escalating rate, more than at any time in history past, and God is silent. Why do things like holocausts happen and God is silent? Why does crime take place? Why a black market? Why the mafia? Why the drug cartel? Why does all this wickedness happen and God is still silent? Why is there false religion and God allows that and he's silent? Well, may I say to you, God is not silent. God has spoken. 
I hold in my hand here God's Word. And God has spoken to us from His Word. And God has done more than just give us His Word. He has shown grace to us by giving us His Son to come to this earth and to die on the cross for this sin that I've spoken of a moment ago. But God has been silent, and we all understand that. But when God breaks the silence, it's going to be with a shout. And amnesty for the unbeliever is going to be over at that time. We've been looking at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to go into a little bit more clarification on it today. And I think you're going to really find this interesting. We're going to be talking about comfort for Christians. But we find here in our passage three truths revolving around that. The first one is what I call the elevating rescue. We are going up, folks. There's going to be this elevating escape or deliverance. And it's described in verse 9. It says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God hath not appointed us to wrath. You say, well, what's that wrath talking about there, Pastor? Is it talking about hell? Well, there's no doubt in the Bible, wrath is referred to, or hell is referred to as wrath. But in the context here, remember what we've been looking at. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about the rapture, right? We've been talking about the second coming of Christ. We've been talking about the tribulation period, a seven-year period on this earth where there's going to be great tribulation. And so the wrath I think it's talking about here is end times wrath, not so much the eternal wrath, but the wrath we're going to see in the last days. Now, Paul had been into Thessalonica. Remember that? He hadn't been there very long. And so he kind of been run out of town, but he had taught something about the second coming of Christ. But apparently there was still some confusion there, and that's why he's writing these two epistles here. Now, remember this. In the original Bible, there were no chapter divisions like we have them here, no verse divisions. And so what Paul is talking about in chapter 5 goes back to chapter 4. And notice what he said here in verse number 16 of chapter 4. He said, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So in context, it's talking about that second coming. It's talking about the rapture of God's people. Now, there's a lot of debate about the rapture. And and here's where the rub is. When will it take place in reference to the tribulation period? You ever wondered about that? And there are some who who speak of a pre-trib rapture, remember that term, which simply means we're going to be raptured before the tribulation period takes place. There are some who believe in a mid-trib rapture, just like it sounds. And then there are those who believe in a post or an end of the rapture or end of the tribulation kind of a rapture. What we really believe is important. And so we've got to look into the scriptures here. We find again in verse 9, it says that God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we see the word salvation, we normally think of being saved, right? Being born again, going to heaven when we die. And certainly the word is interchangeable in that that sense. There's a spiritual salvation. But the word salvation actually is used in other ways. It simply means deliverance. It's the Greek word soteria. We get our word soteriology from it, which is the theology or the study of salvation, soteriology. So what does the word soteria mean in the Greek? It simply means one thing, deliverance. Remember that, deliverance. 
And so the deliverance it could be speaking of could be a spiritual deliverance with being saved, but it also in places is used to speak of a national deliverance, God delivering a nation. It could even be speaking of personal deliverance from harm, from physical harm. We are delivered somehow from harm. Now, in reference to the Great Tribulation period, when are we going to be delivered? What is the tribulation? It's a seven-year period the Bible speaks of. It's known as Daniel's 70th week or the final week uh, or seven years upon the earth. A, 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 a number seven there is found present. And, and there's going to be a great uh, tribulation for all who are left behind after the rapture. But when will this, this rapture take place? When will this deliverance take place? May I say that for over 35 years, I have had a, a firm conviction for a number of reasons, that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation period. Not because I'm a chicken and I want out of here and I don't want to go through all that, that chaos. That, that chaos It has nothing to do with it. But there are a number of reasons why I believe that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation period. And this verse is one of them. Look at it again. Verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain deliverance or salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've been studying this passage here, we've seen us and we a lot. That's Christian people. Then we've seen they and them a lot. And there's really a contrast here. There's a a demarcation. There's a line drawn. And once again, Paul's making a point. The world's going to go through wrath and tribulation. But God hath not appointed unto us this wrath. I believe in a a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, not only for this, this verse's uh, sense of it, but secondly, I believe in a pre-trib rapture because of the element of surprise. Now, think with me here. Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-four forty-four: Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. There's an element of surprise. Now, if we got raptured in the middle of the tribulation period, we'd know we're going through something already, wouldn't we? If we got raptured at the end of the tribulation period, we'd know we'd gone through something. And so we could kind of be saying, well, it's been three and a half years so far, or it's been six or seven years. It should be any day now. But Christ says, be ready for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. And so that requires now alertness on our part. We need to be on our toes as Christians. We need to be ready. There needs to be a, an anticipation. We're not going to be saying, well, there's, there's probably three more years of this now. Because we can tell from what's going on in the world. There's a, a third reason, I believe, in a pre-trib rapture. And that is because of a number of verses in the Bible that indicate we're going to be raptured before the tribulation period. Let me give you a few. In Revelation 3.10, the Lord is talking to a local church, Christian people. He says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them or test them that dwell upon the earth. The testing he speaks of here is a great period of of going through the mill here. And he says, because you've kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. He's saying you're not going to be here. You're going to be out of here. And he's saying it's going to come upon all the world. It's going to try all them that dwell upon the earth. And so I believe we're going to be out of here before it takes place. I also believe for uh, the reason of a, an Old Testament passage written 700 years 
before the time of Christ, but it's a powerful passage. Let me give it to you in two parts. God says, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut the door behind thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. He goes on, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. It's going to be a bloodbath. But we find before that happens, God saying, Come, my people, enter into this chamber, if you will, called heaven. Let me shut the door. It speaks of of protection there and sanctuary and God getting us away from that harm. And so I believe that the, uh, the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation period. Now, as we've been studying through 1 Thessalonians, we've already seen this verse back in chapter 1. Verse 10 says, Wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Do you see it again there? Which delivered us from the wrath to come. I don't think we're going to be here. I think we're going to be out of here. Now, there's another angle. There's another reason why I believe we're going to be taken up before the tribulation period. And you have to follow me carefully on this one. We currently have the Holy Spirit on the earth, don't we? He is suppressing the evil. He is holding it back. He is restraining it. That is, that is part of his job description. Now, he also dwells in us. So we've got to connect the dots here. We're to be salt in the earth. We are to be light to the world. And we too, along with the Holy Spirit, are to be uh, helping to hold back that evil. Well, let me give you a verse that we'll be looking at later someday in 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And you're saying, what? What? Well, in context, again, talking about the end times, actually in that passage talking about the Antichrist, And then it makes reference to this mystery of iniquity. It's already underway. This world's a sinful place. And then this statement comes up. Only he who now letteth will let. You need to understand the Greek word for letteth and let. It means to restrain. To restrain. So it's speaking of the Holy Spirit here, I believe. And it's saying, he, only he, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains, will restrain. Get it? until he be taken out of the way. So we've got the Spirit of God suppressing and holding down that, that evil that's going on. And if he was not, I'm telling you, you wouldn't recognize this world. Depraved mankind left to himself and unshackled with free course would make a mess out of this world. You have no idea how much God is holding it back right now. It would be so ugly. Now, the Holy Spirit resides within believers, right? Follow me? Follow me carefully. The Holy Spirit resides in us. But one day, the Holy Spirit's going to be gone. He that restraining is going to be gone. He's going to be out of the picture. He's going to be taken out of the way, as this verse says. And so there's no longer going to be any Christian conscience at that time. Uh, Perversion and wickedness is going to uh, be carried out in broad daylight. It's going to be cheered on by the godless. There's going to be war and chaos. Honestly, The Holy Spirit leaves with us, and that's why it gets so bad. That's why it has to be at the beginning of the tribulation period. You follow me? He goes with us. By the way, the best thing this world has going for it on planet Earth are born-again Christians. They don't see that. They don't like us. 
They, they, they think we're, we're kind of holding back their agenda here. But you cannot imagine the calamity when God's people leave. Jesus actually says, except those days be shortened, there shall be no flesh left. Can you imagine that? There's going to be just a wiping out of people. So the rapture has to begin at the beginning of the tribulation period if that restraint is going to stop at that time and it's going to get so nasty, it's because the Holy Spirit leaves with us. If, if we're going through the tribulation period, that means the Holy Spirit's still with us, which means we basically are going to have the same thing we have right now, right? This isn't the tribulation period. So there's some timing involved here. Now, there's another angle, and follow me carefully on this one. In the past, if you follow God through the Word of God, you find out that He, he practices a, a getting the just out of the way before He brings on a great judgment. Let me give a couple examples of that. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man cometh. And, and what is it about Noah we can learn here? Well, God protected Noah. He delivered Noah and judged the rest. He delivers the just. We find other examples of that with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story there of God raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? But he could not judge them until he got Lot out of there. In fact, Lot was dragging his feet and the angels had to grab him and say, let's get going here. God can't judge this place until you are out of here. Now, in Luke chapter 17, Christ says, in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked. There was sexual perversion absolutely everywhere. There was sodomy and, and, and the sin was that, that once would slink down back alleys, was strutting down Main Street. And there was economic prosperity. I know that from Ezekiel 16, 9. And the Dow Jones average was through the roof and everything looked so good. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God judged them with fire and brimstone. Well, we find here that before God judges something on a wholesale kind of a scale, He will deliver the just within it. Be it in the days of Noah, be it Lot, that is just simply His style. And why? Well, notice again our text in verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Us. Us. There's a difference. Us and we versus they and them. Now, actually, if you understand the tribulation period, it's not a time of wrath for Christian people, born-again believers. It's actually a time of great chastening for Israel, for the Jews. And we find this verse back in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, it is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. At the end of it, there's going to be a remnant that survive it, and they're going to be saved out of it. But notice it, it refers to Israel here as Jacob. That's always used when it's speaking of the carnality of Israel here. And we find out that it is a time of Jacob's trouble. It, it's not going to be a time of trouble for born-again believers. It's a different story for Christian people. We find in Hebrews 9.28, it says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto 
deliverance, salvation, rescue. There's this elevated rescue. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be out of here. Well, there are a number of other reasons why I believe that the uh, rapture takes place before the tribulation period. But let me give you just one more angle if I could. And this one is more symbolic. It's really something we learn from the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation as he's receiving uh, what's going to happen during those last seven years. You see, Daniel identifies uh, a lot of years in a time period, actually 69 weeks worth, but that, that, that 70th week is left dangling and, and out there, and now at the end of the Bible, God comes in and he explains the nuts and the bolts of that last seven-year period, and he uses John the Apostle, who's on the, the Isle of Patmos in exile, working the copper mines to actually show what's going to happen in the last time. And the thing really starts after Christ talks to the churches. Chapter 4 opens up this way in verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a, what? Trumpet. Does that mean anything? A trumpet talking with me which said, watch this, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And if you follow it chronologically from that point on, you see these, these bowls and these vials and these trumpets and these seals opened. And one after another, it's just violence upon the earth. But guess where John's watching the whole thing from? From heaven. From heaven. He's already up there in heaven. And if that parallel means anything, if John is a picture of us, then we're going to hear that trumpet. We're going to be caught up. And all the devastation is going to follow afterwards. By the way... At the end of the book of the Revelation, we find Christ coming back seven years later on the white horse, and, 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 and we're following him. How did we get there? When did we get there? Follow me? We're not getting raptured at the end of the tribulation. We're already there. We've been up there for seven years. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb taking place. There's the judgment seat of Christ taking place. And so it all fits. It all fits. And I'm so thankful for that. We're coming back with the Lord. That's comforting. We see comfort for the Christian and first of all, we see it in that elevating rescue. But secondly, we see it in this eternal relationship. This eternal relationship is spoken of in verse number 10. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Who died for us. Let's just stop there. Let that sink into our, our ears and down into our hearts a little bit. He died for you. He died for you. He died for you. He gave his life for you. As I exercise sometimes in the morning, I've been watching a documentary recently on, on Patton in World War II, and, and uh, it, it, it humbles me and it sobers me as I see the sacrifice of these, these men who died in World War II and shed their blood and gave their lives. That's why I believe you ought to stand for the flag. And I get real heartburn when, when I see others disrespecting it. I think they'd feel differently if they died for it. There's not many things that I'd die for, honestly. But I would die for our, our country, and I would die for our freedom, and I would die for my, my family. But would you die for an absolute scoundrel? Well, would you die for somebody who denied you, who cursed you, who was bitter towards you. I think you're following me here. We find in Romans 5 and in verse 8 that God commendeth or proved His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
He died for us. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. Churchill said back in World War II, as, as the Germans were blitzing London night after night and, and dropping bombs and killing innocent civilians, the Royal Air Force of, of England went up there to try and distract them and, and do the best they could. They were so outnumbered and so outgunned. But they did the best they could, and they did distract the, uh, the Germans and, and save those civilians down on the ground. And it was Churchill who said, Never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few. But may I say unto you, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you. Who died for you. We read this in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Christ said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. He gave His life. And then He added this in John 15, 13. He said, Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. He gave His life. He died for us. Because He loved us that much. So, what should that mean to us as Christian people now in the 21st century? Well, Ephesians 5.2 says to walk in love. As Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God. Folks, may I say this with, with all the passion I can. The least we could do is love. God help us to walk in love. But also to serve. In light of what Christ has done for us, are we serving Him? We read this in Titus 2.14 that Christ gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Are we serving Him? In light of the fact that He gave Himself for us, what did we do for Him this last week? How are we serving Him now? How are we serving Him? Now, back in verse number 10, notice it says of Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wake or sleep? You mean like literally sleeping? Literally awake? No, these are used in a figurative sense. We've talked about that already. It's talking about whether we're still alive and we're raptured and taken up when the rapture comes or we're, we're dead and, and the body of the departed loved one is slumbering. That's called sleep. My parents, as I speak today, uh, have passed from this earth. They are slumbering up in Grand Forks in a, in a graveyard there. And that's the sleep it's referring to here. Now, in verse 10, it says that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Whether we're uh, alive and raptured at the time or we're slumbering in the ground, we should live for Him. You know, there's some that are sitting here today and you're not going to see the rapture, quite likely, unless it's this afternoon. But there are some here who may live to see the rapture. There are some who might not live to see the rapture. My dad never lived to see it. I'm thinking of an old preacher who was a mentor of mine for many of years, who's 90 years of age now and has talked about the second coming of Christ for years. And it's getting close. It's, it's, it's uh, the 11th hour plus. But will he be here? Will I be here? Will my kids be here? And now my grandkids, will they live to see it? Well, it doesn't matter in a sense because 
it says whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. It's all the same in a, in a sense. In Romans 14.8, it says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. In other words, nothing can sever that relationship. Living or dying, we're the Lord's. Wake or sleep, n- no difference. No defrance. Well, that's use my French a little bit, but no difference. Now, in verse 10, it sums it up. Of Christ, that He died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. I like 2 Corinthians 5.15, that sums it up. He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth or from this point on live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them. It's a tongue twister, but it's saying, look, He died for us. Let's at least live for Him. That's what it's saying. Let's love Him with all of our heart. Let's serve Him with all of our heart. Verse 10 says, whether we, we live together uh, or die or wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. In other words, we're going to be with Him whether we're alive or whether we've died. It's really the same. Christ said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. We're always in the presence of God, and I thank Him for that. Well, we see that comfort in the elevating rescue. We see that comfort in the eternal relationship. And finally, we see it in this edifying reassurance. In verse 11, it says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Notice, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. It reminds me across the page of chapter 4. Look at verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Verse 11 says, comfort yourselves together. What's that mean? Well, it means we're supposed to be encouraging each other as a church family, as, as brethren. We're to be uh, loving each other. We find Galatians 6.2 saying, to bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's like this is summing it up. This is the law of Christ. Love each other. Bear each other's burdens. You know, everybody needs comfort, don't they? I've said many times, everybody's having it rough. So try and be nice to everybody. Try and to encourage everybody. Verse 11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and then notice the next part, and edify one another. That word edify, in the Greek, it means to build up. Like a structure, like a building. To edify, to build up one another. In Romans 14, 19, it says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Are we conscious of this as we live our lives during the week? Are we edifying other people? Are we encouraging them? Are we building them up like a structure? Edification. We read in Ephesians 4, 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Do we minister grace unto the hearers by our words? Do we edify them with the things that we say? I want to really challenge every person in this sanctuary today to go out of these doors and and seek to edify others, encourage others, be a blessing to others. You know, sometimes we cause others to stumble and instead of edifying them. Sometimes we take advantage of our Christian liberty, and we tout this liberty that we have in Christ. 
But let me show you a verse. 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Expedient means profitable. All right, you could do it, but is it going to be profitable? Is it going to be helpful? Is it going to make that person better? Are we edifying them? We're to think of others. Think of others. We should be filtering all that we do through this this thought of, is this going to edify? That's what Paul's talking about in verse 11. Now, as we've talked about comfort for Christians, notice verse 11. It says, wherefore, comfort yourselves together. Comfort yourselves together. May I say to you, beloved, Christianity is a comforting religion. And you go, well, duh. Well, it's not that way with other religions. There are many of them that leave you feeling anxiety, um, confusion. But you know, our founder, Jesus Christ, the one Christianity is named after, continually comforts. In fact, when he walked this earth, you ought to go through the New Testament sometimes and look at the verses where he says, fear not, or he tries to comfort those who are distraught. I think of Luke eight forty-eight. There's a woman with an infirmity, and he said unto her daughter, Be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Our founder is very comforting. Our religion is very comforting. There's the, the, deity, the deity so-called of other religions. And they are impossible to please. They're impossible to placate. They are detached. They are aloof from their so-called followers. But our religion is a very comforting one. Our Savior is a very comforting one. There was a Christian in a church like this many years ago, Mr. Hood. He was always upbeat. He was always on the top side, and he was always serving. But he grew old, and it came time to die. And even from his hospital bed, his deathbed, he was very upbeat. Well, a couple of church members came to comfort him, but they were gloomy, and, and they were mourning and, and uh, poo-pooing. And he finally, Mr. Hood looked at him, and he said, he said, Brethren, he said, your religion doesn't agree with you. <laughs> your religion doesn't agree with you. Isn't that the truth? We have a comforting religion. You know, I preach on sin, and I preach on repentance, and I, I preach on wrath, and, and somebody might say, you're trying to frighten me? Well, not if you're saved. There's nothing to fear. Now, if you've never been born again, if you're lost, you ought to be concerned. The Bible says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Our God is a consuming fire. And yeah, there's that side of it. But if you are saved, you ought to take comfort in the fact Christ is coming back. Notice verse 11 again. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. You know, there are few things more comforting than the second coming of Christ. There are few things more comforting than the second coming of Christ, which is another reason. Another reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture. What comfort could I give you if all I could tell you is, well, tribulation period's coming up. Hang in there. We're going through the tribulation period. It's going to be a bloodbath. You're going to be beheaded. But, you know, sweet dreams. <laughs> Hope that's comforting. No, it's just, just strangle me and get it over with if we've got to go through the tribulation period. They're going to be crying out for the rocks to fall on them. There's nothing comforting about that. But we saw this already. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, 
which delivered us from the wrath to come. May I say this to you? Wrath is for the unsaved. Wrath is not for God's people. Correction is for God's people. Even chastisement is for God's people. God has a woodshed for His people, and He'll take you there, and He'll give you that spanking. But that's a far cry different from wrath. I love this verse. Psalm 23, 4, the psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they what? Comfort me. This is how God deals with His people. You say, well, that rod, that... That staff, what's that all about? Well, it was something the shepherd had to, to keep the sheep in line. He didn't beat them with it, but he'd tap them with it. And he'd nudge them with it. And when they're getting off course, he'd get them back on course. And the psalmist actually said, that's comforting. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God gets us back on course when we're wandering off course for our good and for his glory. And there's a difference there. Well, are you ready for the rapture? Are you ready for that great getting up morning? It's coming, folks. That great getting up morning. I was talking to a dear fellow in the church this last week who lost his, his mother this last summer in death, and they were very, very close. His firstborn, and there was such a bond between him and, and her. And as, as he sat there and, and talked to me about her, the tears were trickling down his, his face. And I, I said, Brother, I, I know you miss your mom, but you'll see her again. You'll see her again. And maybe you've had loved ones who've gone on before you, and you'll see them again. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a, a sibling. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it was an infant. I don't know. But you'll see them again. You'll see them again. Christ is coming back. And as I told this man at the table, I, I said, it could be very soon. It might not take decades. It could be this week. Are you ready for it? Are you anxious for it? Do you love His appearing, as the Bible says? Do you love Him? Are you a faithful witness for Him? Are you serving Him now? Or are you backslidden? I hope you're not going to be a Christian caught with God's tithe in your pocket when He comes back. I hope you're a Christian who's not going to be uh, caught cold-hearted with pornography on your computer. I hope you're not going to be caught with booze on your breath or hatred in your heart or a coldness, or an indifference in your life. If you are, you're probably not looking too anxiously for the second coming of Christ. I can understand that. But if you're right with God, and you're ready, you ought to be anxious. We read this in Revelation 22.20. John the Apostle just couldn't help himself. As Christ said, I'm coming back, and the Bible closes. He says, Amen! Even so, come Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Do we have that attitude? Are we watching for him? There was a, a little fishing village on the East Coast a number of years ago where most of the men in town made their, their living off of fishing. And times were getting tough and fish were kind of being scarce. So there were several of those men who decided to get into a boat together and go up the coast some ways and to try and catch some fish up there. But they'd be gone the whole week. So they left Monday, and they're gone several days, and finally Friday's rolling around, and they're coming back to their fishing village. And as they're nearing it, the skipper takes out his binoculars or his telescope, and he begins to look on shore. And he said, oh, the ladies are waiting for us, men. Our wives are back there. He said, Bill, I see you're Mary. She's there waiting. And Sam, 
Your Elizabeth is waiting there. And John, I can, I can see your Rachel. And he went down the list there, but there was one fisherman on the boat. The skipper didn't mention his wife. Well, they landed at shore, and sure enough, all those wives were there except that one wife. That fisherman kind of looked down, he walked the dock, and he walked down the street, and he, he walked into his house, and he saw his wife, and his wife turned around. She said, oh, nice to have you home, honey. I've been waiting. And the fisherman said, yeah. But the wives of the other men have been watching, watching. You see the difference? Oh, you might be waiting. That's well and fine. But are you watching? Are you watching? According to the Bible, there's going to be a special reward for those who are watching and those who are longing and those who are anxious for the second coming of Christ. Paul said in his last epistle, at the very last chapter, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. There is a special crown for the watching Christian who is anxious for the return of our Savior. Well, Jesus is coming back, and He's going to deliver us from the wrath. That's comforting to me. I hope that's comforting to you. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.